0: What is a lighthouse? It is a tower with a bright light at the top, located at an important or dangerous place. The main purpose of a lighthouse is to serve as a navigational aid and to warn of dangerous areas. Welcome to the EMS Lighthouse Project podcast. Illuminating the darkness of current EMS clinical practice with the bright light of science. Here are your hosts, Dr. Jeff Jarvis and Mike Verkest.
1: Howdy y'all, this is Jeff. So I came across a paper in the latest edition of pre-hospital emergency care and I just had to talk to y'all about it. Coincidentally, I was on a conference call discussing a presentation for EMS World. Now as an aside, this presentation is going to be great. It really is and y'all ought to come. The title of the presentation is Practice Changing Papers, and it's a panel discussion. And I have the honor of serving on that panel with the legendary Dr. Corey Slovis, Dr. Michael Daly, and Kenny Navarro. It's Thursday, October 17th at 4.30. And if the opportunity to come here, uh, Dr. Slovis and Dr. Daly and Kenny, is not enough, let me just go ahead and mention EMS World is in New Orleans And a lot of fun can be had and a lot of trouble can be gotten into in New Orleans. So come on down and have some shenanigans and check out this presentation. Anyway, so we were trying to identify papers and topics we wanted to discuss. And Dr. Slovis started audibly twitching and foaming at the mouth because he wanted to talk about DSD so badly. So I've really felt like I needed to brush up on the literature. So this was a great coincidence. That's what we're going to talk about. Okay, that's a great story, Jeff. But the real reason for the pod? Amazon might have delivered some tech goodness to the Jarvis home. I have a new toy. I have a Zoom H6 digital audio recorder. I got all excited, and I wanted to record a pod with this as soon as I possibly could. And that's the reason I'm solo on this one. All right, so with all that in mind, let's go ahead and talk some research. I'm going to review... A recent paper on the subject of dual sequence defibrillation. So dual sequence defibrillation is relatively new to EMS. It's been used by cardiothoracic surgery for quite some time, where they use the paddles applied directly to the heart. But making the transition to EMS and transthoracic use, well, that's the new part. So I first became aware of this when Dr. Jose Cabanas and Brent Myers Talked about this and they published a case series that they did at Wake that showed DSD was effective at breaking refractory VFib. Now, unfortunately, it was a limited case series. If I remember correctly, it was like 10 patients. Now, none of those patients survived, but it did help get them out of VFib. So, limited evidence, certainly not practice changing by itself. There are a couple of theories about why DSD might be more successful than single defibrillation. So, number one, is using two different electrical vectors may be more effective at depolarizing the myocardium, therefore interrupting VFib and allowing an effective rhythm to re-establish. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's having a second shock right after the first shock, like within a millisecond of the first shock, might allow for more complete depolarization. Or maybe it's just complete voodoo and we have no idea why it works. Now that's assuming that it works. So we really don't know mechanistically why this might work. We have some or why it does work, if it does work. But we do have some theories on why it might. Now, there's never been an RCT on this in the field. The best we've had are case studies, case cohorts, and the evidence of effectiveness is mixed. Some show improved rhythm termination. Others show no difference, and none have shown a survival benefit. So what we're waiting on is an RCT. But until then, we need to learn from what's out there. So the paper we're going to talk about is from UT Health in Houston and the Houston Fire Department. So the authors on this paper are uh, Beck, Ostermeyer, Ponce, Srinivasan, and our buddy Henry White. So the title of the paper is Effectiveness of Prehospital Dual Sequential Defibrillation for Refractory Ventricular Fibrillation and Ventricular Tachycardia, cardiac arrest. It was published in pre-hospital emergency care, as I said, in the September-October edition from 2019. So it truly is hot off the press. So this is a retrospective chart audit of records from the Houston Fire EMS system. Now, just in case you grew up under a rock and don't know this, Houston is a really big city. It's 667 square miles and contains 2.3 million people. That's a lot of people. They run over 300,000 calls a year, so obviously they're very busy. Now, just like most of us, they have an electronic patient care report, uh, but their medical control system also maintains a QI database of all cardiac arrest patients, and that's what they go back in and put the outcome from all of these patients. Finally, they have a system to record medical director records. So each cardiac arrest involves contacting online medical control and the EMS physician answering the radio creates a report in this system. So, what did they do in the study? Well, they abstracted data from all three of these systems. They linked them together so that you had a a transactional record of everything that happened to the patient that's reported under these three systems. They pulled all cardiac arrest from January of 13 to December of 16 and included all patients with a refractory vfib that they defined as patients who had received three or more single shocks. They split those total calls into two groups, those who got DSD and those who did not get DSD. They excluded any patients that they were missing data from, and I believe that was only like three or four. It wasn't very many. Now, every cardiac arrest in the HFD system has contact with online medical control as soon as possible in the code, and it's almost always before the third shock. Electrical therapy after the third shock was at the discretion of the online medical control physician. It was not protocol-driven. So that's one of the limitations of this study. So the outcomes they were looking at was the primary outcome was ROSC, uh, they were also looking at survival to hospital admission, 72-hour survival, and survival to hospital discharge. The way they looked at this was by performing a multivariable logistic regression for each one of those outcomes. So they did one for ROSC, and they compared DSD to SD, or sole, single shock defibrillation. And that was their primary predictor. So they did that for ROSC, then they repeated it for survival to hospital admission, and so on. One of the strengths of logistic regression is you can control for other potential confounding variables, and they did. They adjusted this for all the usual predictors, so age, gender, initial rhythm. Uh, They also adjusted for bystander CPR or uh, type of advanced airway. I think they also included whether it was witnessed or not. So they had a group of 310 total patients. Now again, this is 300 there's not just 310 patients in cardiac arrest over that period of time because there were way more of those. This is just 310 patients who were in VFib after at least three shocks. So the way it was distributed, there's 71 patients in the DSD group and the majority 239 only got single shocks. Now, I checked with the authors and they clarified that there was dual sequence defibrillation, two monitors available for everybody. And in case you're wondering, they're using LifePak 12s or LifePak 15s. The majority were LifePak 15s, I think. So the two groups were pretty similar in terms of age, gender, witness status, bystander CPR, initial rhythm, airway type, and the number of initial standard shocks. There were several important differences, though. The DSD group had more total shocks at 6.7 versus 4.7. In an average of 2.2 dual sequence shocks. The DSD group also got more epinephrine, about 2 milligrams more. They got 8.2 milligrams versus 6.2 in the single shock group. Now, the overall amount of amiodarone in both groups was similar, but the proportion of patients who got no amiodarone at all, which to me suggests earlier VFib termination, was higher in the standard group at 21% versus 7. So what were their outcomes? Bottom line, ROSC was less likely in the DSD group with an odds ratio, adjusted odds ratio of 0.46 and a confidence interval of 0.25 to 0.87. And if you'll remember, an odds ratio of 1 means there's no difference. So if you have a 95% confidence interval that is entirely on one side or the other of 1, That is statistically significant. So in this case, the odds ratio was uh, 0.46, which means that the odds of ROSC were 54% lower with DSD than SD. And because the confidence interval is on one side of one, that's significant. Now, there were no significant differences with any of the other outcomes. So the author's conclusion was that DSD is ineffective because it was associated with lower odds of ROSC. Alright, so what's my takeaway? Not so fast. So first off, I want to uh, congratulate Mrs. Beck and her co-authors on investigating a really cool topic. I would also like to thank them for corresponding with them and with me and answering some of my questions. So they attempted to answer the question of the effectiveness of DSD using their retrospective data set, but as with any project answering questions with existing data, the strength of the conclusions are hampered by the collection of the data. So in this case, we just don't know, fundamentally don't know why some patients got DSD and others did not. That's understandable because of the nature of the data set, but it's unfortunate because without knowing this, I don't know that these aren't two fundamentally different groups, and that's the reason we're seeing lower ROSC. So maybe there is a systemic reason that the EMS physician ordered DSD on some patients but not on others. Now, of the characteristics that are reported, there aren't any differences. But unfortunately, there are so many unmeasured or unrecorded possible confounders that we really can't say for sure. And this isn't to dig at what the folks at HFD are doing. It's just a recognition of reality. All of us have seen a patient that we see is sick and we treat them differently than a patient we see and don't think they're sick. And that difference, we may not even be consciously aware of it, but we treat them differently. And it certainly doesn't end up in our chart. Now, I'm inclined to think that what we may be seeing here really is the effect of the duration of the resuscitation rather than the DSD itself. The DSD got more epinephrine and had more shocks, which would support a difference in the duration. But we don't know what that duration was. Now, the only difference here we see is less ROSC with DSD. Now, if we were seeing an impact of more epinephrine, as the authors suggest, well, then we would expect to see more ROSC, not less ROSC. So I don't think that's really it. Now, it could be uh, that, but for the epi, the difference with DSD would have been even larger, meaning there would be even less ROSC. I doubt that, but we just don't know. And finally, there are no other differences in any survival outcome, and ultimately, that's really what we care about. So what we need here is an RCT. Now, fortunately, there's an RCT underway, and data collection has already stopped. It's a pilot study out of Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, and they're using four regional EMS agencies, including the Toronto system. It's a cluster randomized controlled trial, and that basically means that each of the systems is going to switch. So four months, they're going to do one intervention. The next four months, they'll do another and another and so on. And they're going to do this for a year. They are randomizing patients to one of three groups. Either they get DSD or they get continued single-dose defibrillation, just as is standard, or the third, and I think this is really clever, they're going to continue with a single shock, but they're going to alter the electrical vector following the second shock. Or following the uh, the third shock. So they're going to enroll people in this trial after the third shock fails. So everyone's going to get three single shocks. Then they go into one of these three groups. Now, this is a pilot study, which means it is not really designed to answer the question. It's designed to make sure that it's a feasible study and no harm is done. And that helps them generate what differences they're likely to see so they can adequately power a study to answer the question. We should have these results by the end of the year. Now another question that's going to remain even after this RT is what is the impact of early DSD? Maybe we're not seeing an improvement in DSD in this paper because they waited too long to deploy it. Now my system uses DSD and we do it after the first failed shock. Maybe that's the ticket. Maybe that's what would make a difference. But then again, Maybe not. We just don't know. And in my system, we don't have enough data accumulated yet to really analyze it. So the bottom line here is at least until I get the results of the RCT, I'm not going to change my practice. Changing practice requires education, which costs money. There's also an opportunity cost because you're teaching this when you could be teaching something else. So maybe I shouldn't have implemented this to begin with. Um, and that's a fair argument. If anybody wants to make it, you're absolutely right. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. And now that I have, I'm going to wait until I see some more evidence before I send uh, spend my system's resources on that change. Now, that's all I have to say on this paper, but I do want you to, I want to let y'all know something. I would never, ever, ever use this podcast for something petty or personal, or inappropriate. I would never say, use this podcast to win a bet. As an example, I would never tell y'all an interesting factoid. I would certainly, absolutely, positively never say that my friend, Park Knight bet me that I could not work the fact that the Helter Skelter Charles Manson clan committed the Tate LaBianca murders on the very same day that the Haunted Mansion uh, haunted mansion attraction opened up at Disney World. Now, thankfully for y'all, I would never do something petty and personal like that. And now that I have not done anything petty or personal, I'm going to go ahead and tell y'all that I hope you have a wonderful night. I'll talk to you again soon. Take care, y'all.
0: You've been listening to the EMS Lighthouse Project Podcast. A proud member of the Flight Ed podcast family and a Fire Dog production. Visit Flightbridgeed.com for more information.